call to worship. Sing a song of thanksgiving. For the Lord dwells among the people. Let us worship God. Be seated. 
We worship a God of grace who knows our every struggle and misstep, yet loves us unconditionally and calls us to return to love and be healed. Let us turn to God in that spirit, opening our hearts to God's power of transformation using the responsive prayer of confession in our bulletins. God of grace, deliver us. God of grace, deliver us from selfishness and vain desires. God of grace, deliver us from irresponsible behavior God of grace, deliver us from hurtful disagreements and God of grace, deliver us. Forgive us, we pray, and teach us to forgive through Jesus Christ. Amen. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save us, to redeem us, and recall us into the arms of a loving God. Friends, believe the good news. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Well, as we prepare our hearts to share a sign of Christ's peace, I invite those of you worshiping with us online to take this time to sign the digital pew pad, which you can do by scanning the QR code on your screen or by clicking the link below the live stream. And here in the sanctuary, we invite you to greet those around you with a nod or a handshake, a wave or a bow, whatever feels like the most uplifting sign of connection and peace to you. Friends, the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let us share a sign of that peace. Amen. Well, welcome to worship here at Fourth Presbyterian Church, and welcome to our fall season and our new worship times. Welcome. <laughs> As I lift up a few announcements, I invite those of you here in the sanctuary to find the pew pads at the end of each row to fill those out and pass them to your neighbors so that we may also know that you are here with us today. If you are a volunteer at the church in any capacity, on tomorrow, Monday, September 11th, you will receive a brief survey in your email. 
We ask that you please do take a few moments to fill this out as it helps us to understand the volunteer experience and to plan better ways to support you in your service. And if you're not yet a volunteer, I encourage you to consider volunteering in one of the many ways to do so, as this is a powerful way to meet people, to build community, and to be of service in God's beautiful world. Well, today is a very celebratory day as we kick off the new program year. After worship, we invite you to our Get Connected festivities in Anderson Hall through the doors to your left. There, in addition to coffee and apple cider donuts, you can also learn from many groups and individuals about some of the ways that you can be involved in the life of the church and get connected with each other in this season. And from there, we hope you'll make your way out to the Michigan Avenue Courtyard for our neighborhood block party, complete with ice cream treats, freshly popped popcorn and a really cool popcorn machine, apple cider, more donuts, a fun photo booth, music, games, produce from the urban farm, a pet blessing, and more. So it's gorgeous out there too. So join the fun after worship. As always, we encourage you to peruse your worship bulletin to find many other ways to be involved in the life of the church. From this Tuesday's celebration of the Chicago Lights Social Services Center to Saturday's deep listening dinner at the Urban Farm this time, to a new veterans support group, or to the monthly LGBTQIA brunch that happens after church once a month. You can get those dates in your bulletin and so many more things. Also after today's service, there will be deacons available to pray with you in Stone Chapel through the doors to your right. And now let us continue it in worship by celebrating the sacrament of baptism. Friends, obeying the word of our Lord Jesus and confident of his promises, we baptize all those whom God has called and we give particular thanks this morning for Emmett Isaac Allerton. Hi there. <laughs> you are about to be baptized. It is in baptism that God claims us and seals us to show us that we belong to God. God frees us from sin and death, uniting us with Christ, and by water and the Holy Spirit, we are made members of the church, the body of Christ, and joined to Christ's ministry of love, peace, and justice. Let us remember with joy our own baptisms as we celebrate this sacrament. So parents and brother, will you please stand and answer these questions? <laughs> Do you desire that your children be that your child be baptized? Do you? Do you, as parents, confess your own faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and do you trust in him? We do. 
And relying on God's grace, do you intend your child to be Christ's disciple, to obey God's living word, and to show God's love? We do. Wonderful. Thank you. And now I invite our ruling elder, Melanie O. Pierce, a member of our church's session, to ask a question of the entire congregation. In our Presbyterian tradition, the congregation as a whole takes responsibility for nurturing those baptized into the life of the church. Do you, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, promise to guide and nurture this child by word and deed, with love and prayer, encouraging them to follow and know Christ and to be faithful members of Christ's church? If so, please say, we do. We do. Friends, let us pray. We give you thanks, eternal God, for you nourish and sustain all living things by the gift of water. In the beginning of time, your spirit moved over the watery chaos, calling forth order and life. In the waters of the Jordan, Jesus was baptized by John and anointed with your spirit. By the baptism of his own death and resurrection, Christ set us free from sin and death and opened the way to eternal life. Gracious God, we pray now that you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon this water that this font may be a place of new birth. As this child passes through these waters, may he be delivered from death to life, from bondage to freedom, from sin to righteousness. Strengthen him to serve you with joy until the day you make all things new. To you be all praise, honor and glory through Jesus Christ, our Savior, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns forever. And may we as God's people say, Amen. Melanie, I invite you to present the candidate for baptism. Matt and Maria Allerton present their child, Emmett Isaac, for baptism. You may come forward. Hi, Emmett. Hi, cutie. Are we ready for yes, this is right here. That's great. Yeah, see? <laughs> Emmett Isaac Allerton. <laughs> I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Emmett, child of the covenant. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism, and you are marked as Christ's own forever. <laughs> and ever and ever. I invite you to turn and face your church family. <laughs> Meet Emmett. 
Emmett is the newest member of our church family, and it's with thanksgiving that we welcome him to share with us in Christ's ministry, and it is with joy that we will watch him grow into the person that God has called him to be. So in gratitude for the gift of this sacrament, let us together pray. Merciful and loving God, you have called each of us by name and you hold each of us through your love. We ask now that you watch over Emmett, that as he grows up, you would guide them every step of the way. May you increase his compassion for others, inspire him to make a difference in this world, and help him to know that he is one of your beloved children. Help his parents as they teach their faith to him, and help us as a church to support them in doing so. May love and joy be a constant presence in their family. And may they be continually inspired by you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, little one. <laughs> Friends, the grace of God, the love of Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all and with you. Amen.
Let us pray. Loving God, fountain of every blessing, open us to your life-giving word and fill us with your Holy Spirit so that living water may flow through our hearts, a spring of hope for a thirsty world. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 119, verses 33 to 43. Listen now for God's word to us. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your teaching. I shall keep it with all my heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for that is my desire. Incline my heart to your decrees and not to unjust gain. Turn my eyes from preholding falsehood. Give me life in your way. Fulfill your promise to your servant, which is for those who fear you. Turn away the reproach that I dread, because your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your commandments. By your righteousness, enliven me. The word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. Our gospel lesson this morning comes to us from the gospel of Matthew. It's from the 18th chapter, beginning with the 15th verse. Listen now for God's word to God's people. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you 
so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Holy wisdom, holy word, thanks be to God. Please bow with me in prayer. Almighty God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight. You are rock, you are redeemer. And may we as your children say, Amen. Such a joyous Sunday here on September 10th, the kickoff of a new program year, the reinstitution of two Tuesday or two Sunday morning worship services and one afternoon worship service to return. It almost feels like a return to normalcy a joyous time to celebrate, the joy of baptism and beautiful bouncing baby boys. Here we are surrounded by the warmth and glow of fellowship, and yet we're greeted with a text that talks about conflict. Why on this Sunday would we bother to pause and think about conflict when we contemplate popcorn and peanuts and Cracker Jack and cornhole and wonderful opportunities to learn about the various ministries of the church? Friends, if you receive nothing else from what I'm about to say, please know this. In the presence of Christ, conflict is the catalyst for transformation. In the presence of Christ, conflict is the catalyst for transformation. As I've pondered the nature of conflict and methods of resolution, I recently asked a friend, friend, what is your approach to conflict? And the first thing he said to me off the bat was, I do everything I can to mitigate it from happening in the first place. I said, oh, avoidance. And he said, well, I seek to 
take action to alleviate the problem without engaging in confrontation. I was curious about that. I said, friend, how does that work? Can you give me an example? And he said, well, sometimes I just try to do something myself, let's say around the house, uh, and address it so that whatever I identify as a problem is solved. Let's take, for example, the dishes. Perhaps some of you can relate. If I notice that it's been a while since the dishes have been done or attended to, and my partner hasn't gotten around to it, I'll just go ahead and do the dishes. I said, okay, well, that's one way to avoid engaging in conflict. I said, but what if it was her turn to do the dishes? And he said, oh, well, I find what works are subtle hints. Said, tell me more about that. Well, subtle hints can be spoken or they can be unspoken. So uh, I might first start with the subtle hint of um, picking up a dish. And maybe we'll be talking after dinner and I'll pick it up and, you know, start to scrub it and, and reach for the sponge. And she'll say to me, oh, oh, don't worry about that, hon. I'll get that. I know I was supposed to do that this morning. I got it. Ah, crisis averted. Or, if that doesn't work, he may say something like, you know, I see that these dishes are starting to pile up. Maybe I should uh, take a crack at them. And that also often serves as a cue for her to say, oh, no, no, honey, don't worry about it. I got it. I know it's my turn. And I said, but what about when you don't agree whose turn it is to do the dishes or who has the bandwidth to do them? And he said, oh, well, if we actually disagree about something and there is conflict that's posed, genuinely, I, I seek to empathize with her point of view. I, invite the opportunity for her to share what her grievance or her problem is, and I pause to listen. And I pause, as they say, to listen to understand. You see, I am deeply influenced by that book. Have you heard of it? It's called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And so I address our conflict that way. One-on-one -on -one conflict is familiar territory for us, and yet it is so often our instinct to avoid it at all costs. In fact, we often think that it is the godly way to approach the presence of conflict is to deny that it exists altogether. And yet here we have Jesus this morning talking about the presence of conflict. I'm reminded of the wisdom of perhaps a modern-day prophet of our time, Presbyterian minister Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, who is quoted as saying, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. If it's mentionable, 
If something that is the cause of conflict can be mentioned, it can be brought to the fore, and then it can be addressed and managed. If it's mentionable, it's manageable. And especially in the presence of Christ, conflict is the catalyst for transformation because if it is mentionable, then it is manageable. In the presence of Christ, conflict is the catalyst for transformation for the sake of nurturing authentic Christian community. Jesus' counsel on addressing grievances is not for the sake of individual affirmation or for the offender to get their just desserts, if you will, but for all to bear witness to the power of reconciliation to overcome estrangement, to bear witness to the possibility of reconciliation is not simply to be a spectator, but to actively participate in promoting the spiritual gift of mended relationship. Scholar Diane Bergant speaks of how Jesus emphasizes the importance of community in two ways. She says, first, it's the entire band of disciples, not merely its leader, that exercises disciplinary power within the community. The disciples are the ones who are doing the binding and the loosing. Second, Jesus declares that any agreement arrived at by two members of this band will be heard. He's not talking about prayer in general, where two or three are gathered, but prayer for guidance in coming to a decision that will affect community well-being. Jesus promises to be present in his church if the members turn to him for guidance. Conflict as catalyst. Second Temple Jerusalem. The ancient cultural backdrop in which Jesus was situated was rife with conflict stemming from centuries of religio-political turmoil. Jewish studies scholar Joshua Schwartz observes, quote, Jewish society was heavily fragmented during the Second Temple period, ethnically, politically, economically, socially, and religiously. Instead of one Jewish society, there was an almost infinite number of societies and communities, many of which claimed religious primacy or sought cultural, political, or economic supremacy. And the height of this religious or sectarian conflict during Jesus' time arose among the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Charismatic figures of dissent like John the Baptist and Jesus were among a cacophony of voices of the time. Now internally, each of these sects maintained their own standards and practices for addressing internal conflict through disciplinary action. 
Scholar Mitchell Reddish points to the example of the Essenes, the Qumran community, as described in the Dead Sea Scrolls, where members were obligated to show care and respect for community members or to risk expulsion if they failed to do so. The influences of these standards are reflected to some extent in Jesus' own counsel in our passage this morning. Jesus spoke in the midst of and in relation to a cultural and historical backdrop by which he was both impacted and shaped which I believe magnifies his ability to speak to and about the dynamics of human relationships he came to transform. Friends, dare we, as Fourth Church, ask what cultural conflicts serve as the backdrop of our own community? Uh-oh. Dare I say it? I dare say it. Even as much as we love and value and celebrate our community of Fourth Church, gathered, gathered under the banner and presence of these angels that look down upon us, this space of tranquil solemnity that allows us to connect with the true presence of spirit. There is among us turmoil. There is conflict. There are opposing viewpoints that coexist in any number of areas. There are those who long for the days when the ushers wore coats and tails. There are those who long for the days when each of the pastors polished their patent leather shoes to a spit shine, black in hue, as would be decent and appropriate. There are those who long for the strains of the organ and exclusively the organ to waft through the sanctuary. There are those who lean into tradition from generation to generation that have worshipped in this sanctuary over the 152 years of its existence and who don't resonate with things being different, who don't come to church to encounter conflict or difference, or a grappling with what's outside of those doors, but to be contained and held and nurtured by what is inside. There are those who come in to these doors who come through to hear a word about how everything can be changed, about how the music, about how the message, about how the dress, about how the pews, about who sits in the midst of us, about who comes through the doors, about how we are moved to live in discipleship might be different, might not be traditional at all, but might be transformed to, resem to resemble contemporary concerns. 
There are those who come here seeking to run away from what they identify as the scourge of identity politics, of having to hear about identities preached from the pulpit, about acknowledging differences in race, in differences in sexual orientation or identity, in hearing about differences in political affiliation. They come for refuge only to find that they are beaten over the head by the issues of the day and, which, and wish only for Christ to be preached. There are those who come through this door who long for a message that would shatter respectability, that would call out and name areas in the larger society of exclusion, that it would call the church when it has been a part of the dominant culture to oppress and keep people out to call people in who have not traditionally been a part of this church. There are those who seek solidarity and allyship. There are those who seek individuality and only to be left alone. And we make a subtle agreement to ourselves often when we come through these doors that we won't name these things or these points of difference for the sake of not ruffling feathers, because we don't trust that we can handle feathers ruffled. We don't trust that the other opposing view can handle it, but perhaps most importantly, we don't trust that we can. Jesus' counsel on conflict in Matthew's gospel reflects the nuances and concerns of the community to which it was written, which was also shaped by the competing cultural forces of its time. The gospel of Matthew was written for a community of predominantly Jewish Christians. That is, Jews formed under the dominant influences of Second Temple Judaism, who came to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah in fulfillment of prophecy, instead of a majority of a Gentile group of believers. And because it is written in the context of a specific community, it emphasizes the concerns experienced by that community. In other words, Jesus' words on conflict resolution for a worshiping community dealing with internal conflict. There are a few tells that give us an indication that this is what is at work here in this gospel. One involves the use of the word church or assembly, which is rendered ecclesia in the Greek. The word appears twice in the gospel of Matthew, and these are the only times that that word appears throughout any of the other Gospels. It doesn't appear in Matthew or Mark or Luke. Another, or Mark or Luke or John, I should say. Another tell is verse 17, where Jesus says, and if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Hmm. 
Given Jesus' infamous reputation for breaking bread with sinners and tax collectors, these words ring more like editorial postscript. In fact, Jesus' notable association with such deplorables, if you will, speaks to the significance of communal identity in Eastern-based cultures of antiquity. Contrary to our inclination to value the self and autonomy, the sense of being in antiquity was a collective sense of belonging to a community, a culture, or a tribe. Honor the family name was the defining responsibility of the individual. Honor of one brought honor to all. Shame of one brought shame to all. So that when Jesus advocates for the one to have been victimized or sinned against, to be the one to initiate the conversation. Today, we hear that as a, as a burden and sometimes as a danger. But in Jesus' time, this ensured the preservation of honor without the shaming of the individual who is called to accountability. See, in the presence of Christ, conflict is the catalyst for transformation, and that transformation ensures the full humanity of both the offender and the offended. That's why conflict is not a dangerous place, or it need not be, when it's rooted in Christ. See, while we may lean on tradition to tell us that conflict is indecent and inappropriate among Christians, the truth is there has never been a time in the history of Jesus or the church without conflict. In Mark chapter 6, when Jesus returns to his hometown to teach in the synagogues among his former rabbis in front of his neighbors and friends and his mother, he's met with such fierce opposition to his message that he is left to conclude prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. There has always been conflict in the church. That we are fourth Presbyterian church, down the street from and around the bend from Holy Names Cathedral, St. James Episcopal Church, and Annunciation Greek Orthodox Church, among a plethora of others, demonstrates that from Antioch to Constantinople to Heidelberg and the 95 encyclicals of Martin Luther nailed to the church door heralding the birth of Protestantism, conflict and Christianity seem all but inevitable. But in the presence of Christ, conflict can be the catalyst for transformation. It can lift up the downtrodden when they're given voice and given the space to listen and to be listened to. 
In the presence of Christ, conflict is the catalyst for transformation when the quest for truth is genuinely rooted in love. Love for Christ, love for the church, love for humanity, and love for creation. And it's rooted in the presence of Christ, even or perhaps especially in the midst of conflict, that we dare pray together. That we prayed together indeed this morning. God of grace, deliver us from evil even when it masquerades as good. God of grace, deliver us from selfishness and vain desires. God of grace, deliver us from irresponsible behaviors, quarreling and jealousy. God of grace, deliver us from hurtful disagreements and irreconcilable differences. God of grace, deliver us, turn us away from the death that sin inflicts. Lead us into the abundant life Christ brings. Forgive us, we pray, and teach us to forgive through Jesus Christ. So be it. Amen.
affirming the faith that we believe using these words from the A Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The white roses in the chancel this morning represent a change in the life of our congregation. Patricia Trish Roder Autry died on August 29th, and Pamela Grinius died September 7th. And so we give thanks for these two saints of God, and we give thanks for their life among us, and their place in the life and the world to come. And now let us join our hearts and minds together in prayer. O Holy One, you are nearer to us than we are to ourselves. Not a word falls upon our lips without you knowing. Not a thought touches our hearts without your awareness. And yet we raise our voices to you in prayer, not so much that you might deliver what you know we already need, but that we might, in calling out to you, know your deep and abiding presence, presence which guides us. So we pray this morning, Lord, let us know your presence. Let us experience it among us as we worship and begin a new season in our congregation's life. Embrace us even as we seek to embrace and welcome friends and neighbors to our community from near and far. Embrace children as they receive their baptism and enter the community of faith. Be with us as we linger a while in the slight coolness of this late summer day. Be with us as we still our bodies, always hurrying, rushing to the next task, worry, or adventure. We invite you here to dwell with us. And while we dwell together, we pray that we might not fear being vulnerable. May our communion with you be a safe place to be our full selves where we can lay down our anxieties before you and find rest in your presence. Yes, offer us rest, O Lord, especially for those who have borne much over the course of this week. We pray that you might give rest to the weary in our own congregation and in our own city, those searching for a home to comfortably lay their heads at night, those seeking a pathway to education and jobs, those fleeing from violence, those going into harm's way to confront it. 
We pray that those whose eyes water with fresh tears this day in Morocco might find a place to hold their grief in the midst of a devastating earthquake that has taken away untold numbers of lives. And as those who have lost loved ones, homes, and communities, we beseech your grace that they may have comfort and peace, as well as the goodwill and generosity of people from many lands to support them as they rebuild their lives in their country. Gracious one in whom we live and move and have our being, may your presence also move us this day. Might it propel us to be a people who love extravagantly, serve humbly, proclaim hope that eclipses fear and cynicism and conflict. May we also be sent out to be such people among those who struggle, among those who wonder if there is anything more to this life than fleeting pleasures and the hunt for daily bread. Send us out to be such people among those who wait in hospital beds and for test results who sit in waiting room for the next treatment. Send us out to be such people among those who have been discouraged and damaged by the ways of the church. We lift all of these prayers up to you, trusting that you are ever faithful, that you are with us as our steadfast companion. We lift these prayers up in the name of Jesus, who taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Surrounding the sanctuary that we are in today, friends, there is a mighty edifice, there is a mighty edifice built from stone upon stone. Each of our acts of giving, whether it's giving in kindness and compassion, singular acts of justice seeking, or the giving of our tithes and offerings, function like one small stone placed next to the other until eventually we have a sanctuary of love that provides a shelter for many. As you give today to the ministries of Fourth Presbyterian Church and the programs of Chicago Lights, you help us cover all God's people in a sanctuary and abode of love. Your morning offering will now be received.
let us join together in our prayer of dedication. Waymaking God, we have received much from your hand, your grace, your love, your very heart in Christ Jesus. Now make us givers who provide through these offerings provision for all in need, who witness through our lives, labors, and creativity to your reign of peace which has no end. Amen. transformation. So argue in the spirit of being transformed as blessed disciples of Christ. Go and serve the Lord of peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, creator, redeemer, and sustainer of all. And may we as God's beloved children say together, amen. Amen.